Well, as we come now to open God's word, let's bow together in a word of prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, we indeed come and beseech you this morning, asking that you would please open our minds, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the glory of Jesus Christ from your word today. You are the mighty sovereign one who reigns and rules over all. You are the God who is worthy of all worship and praise from every creature, every molecule on this earth. And Father, we want to see you glorified. I pray this morning as we open your word, may we see it as the holy, inspired, inerrant word that it is. And may it speak to us and may we humble ourselves and submit to it. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, it's interesting to me how at Christmas time we find ways to express some of our biggest and deepest desires and longings. And you really just have to turn on the radio or maybe tap to your music app, whatever that might be, and start listening to the Christmas music that is played during the season to be able to hear what some of those desires are. Right? There's this desire for comfort of relationships and obviously the mix of Christmas and romance is found on every pop music uh, Christmas album. All I want for Christmas is you. But there's also the more fundamental desires of being with family, right? I'll be home for Christmas. We desire that we can gather, that we can be with our loved ones. We want joy and blessing. I mean those words of rejoice and uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, this idea of happiness and joy and rejoicing is something that is shared and heard everywhere. You see it on cards, you hear it in songs. Along with that is this idea of glad tidings, right? We want, we, we speak of wanting to hear good news, whether that's in Christmas cards, hearing from friends and family, uh, or whether it's uh, news from anywhere that's good. And this is a year that uh, we haven't necessarily been hearing glad tidings in 2020, right? We've been, we've been hearing sad tidings. We've been hearing uh, negative things. But I think what strikes me most when I, when I hear Christmas songs and think about what people are desiring and wanting at Christmas is, th is this idea of wanting peace. They want peace on earth. And we know, as we read in Luke 2, this is what was proclaimed the, from the angels on the night of Christ's birth, that there would be peace. And it strikes at the core of the human heart. We've come through a crazy year, and a year that has been incredibly divisive. And now, we, our country isn't at war like World War Two, but there is definitely a battle going on. And people are wanting peace. They want the division and the rancor to die away and fade down. Think of the song Grown Up Christmas List, where it says, No more lives torn apart, that wars would never start, and time would heal all hearts. This is the desire of mankind, is that these, this fighting, all this... Uh, battling would not go on. Or maybe you're familiar with the song by John Lennon, Happy Christmas. 
right? Desiring that in the new year that there'd be happiness that goes along and we live without fear and that war would be over. He admits in the song that the world is wrong and he wants Christmas to be happy. He wants the next year to be a good one without any fear. Now, I believe these desires that are expressed in so much of our Christmas songs are legitimate. They reflect good desires. They, we were actually made, created to want these things. They're not misplaced. But if we're honest, these desires are more elusive than ever. We're not any closer to seeing these desires fully fulfilled here in the United States or on this globe are we really any closer to full peace on earth? When we turn on the news, are we getting glad tidings? Are we getting truthful tidings? Are people happier today than they were last year? I think it's fair to say people are more fearful this year than they were in previous years. And so these longings that are found deep down within us are left unmet. As much as each Christmas comes and goes and we sing these songs and we desire that there would be peace on earth they're not met. And so the question for us today is where do we look to have these longings fulfilled? In what is our hope placed? Many today have placed their hope that what gives them cheer and helps them to think about the future is politics or a certain political leader that they think will bring in a better future. And that's where their hope is. Is placed. Others have their hope in an elusive, constantly bettering of humanity, a utopian vision in which things will just continue to improve. Others have placed their hope in activism. We've got to fight, we've got to engage, and as long as we can stay in the fight and keep working for a better world, we can bring about something better, and their hope is found in whatever they can produce. But we need to ask ourselves, uh, what does the Bible say about hope? In what should Christians place their hope? Does the Bible give us any directions for how we can have hope in these days? And the answer is, yes, I believe it does. It speaks to all areas of our lives, and it speaks to what should support and cheer our hope for the future. Today, in our lingo, in talking with one another, we use the word hope often in, uh, simultaneously or interchangeably with wish, right? A child may say, I hope I get that toy for Christmas. They have no idea if they're getting that toy, but they say that they hope they get it. It expresses a desire or a wish. But biblically, the word hope is not that way. It's used differently. In the Bible, hope speaks of a confident expectation. It speaks of certainty, not possibility. Biblical hope is something we can be sure of, not just hope for, not just wish for. Biblical hope is something we can be sure of, not just wish for. This morning, I want to remind you of the rock-solid hope you have in Jesus the King. This Christmas, we might be sorrowful, or disappointed about many things because this world is filled with trouble. But we can be hopeful this Christmas. We can have hearts filled with hope. We've been reflecting this Advent season on Christ the King. And we can't talk about Christ being King without Him coming 
to set up his kingdom without him coming to reign upon this earth. And that is what we must remember as we think about Christ being king. We can't let the manger fool us. We can't let the meek and mild child there in the hay think that that's all there is to Jesus. No, he's the mighty and returning king. Now, Christmas time is a time that we reflect upon Jesus coming 2,000 years ago as a baby, living upon this earth, and ultimately dying upon a cross. He took on human flesh. He was born of a woman, the Virgin Mary. His birth was marked with the unique circumstances that we see in all of these nativity scenes, right? Angels showing up, announcing his conception and his birth. Shepherds coming to see him. The wise men traveling to worship him and being laid in the manger in his humble beginnings. And these are the details that we rightly focus on at the Christmas season. But that advent of Christ is not the only advent of Christ. He will come again. And his, his second advent is rarely mentioned, rarely talked about at Christmas time. In fact, it's rarely talked about at all these days. The second coming of Jesus is not a doctrine that you hear much of even in the church. And I believe that the church is poorer for it. The church's hope is weaker in light of it. And in fact, I just ask you when, was you, when did you last seriously think about the return of Jesus Christ? That it could be any day, that it could be today, it could be tomorrow. Well, I want, to, I want us to begin this morning by showing how Paul talks about hope for the Christians. So I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to Titus chapter 2. The book of Titus chapter 2. Here we're going to see this interplay between what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, how we're to live today, and what we look forward to. This is the encapsulation of the gospel message, the past, the present, and the future. Book of Titus, chapter 2. I'm going to say, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles provided for you in the pews directly in front of you. And you can find those in the pew rack, or if you're in the front row, they're under your seat. Titus, chapter 2. Look at verse 11 through 14 with me. Follow along as I read. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Let me just draw your attention to a few things here. First, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God, a, a, the, the unmerited favor toward hell-deserving sinners. That grace has come from God to earth, has appeared, it says, bringing salvation. Bringing salvation to not universal redemption so that every single person who's ever lived is saved, but this idea that salvation has come to every category of people. There's no class or type or category of people that the gospel does not apply to, that salvation is not available to. In other words, just because someone is old doesn't mean the gospel bypasses them. 
Just because a woman is a, is a woman doesn't mean that God's grace bypasses them, or just because someone's poor doesn't mean the gospel bypasses them just because they're poor. No, salvation comes to all people of all stripes and of all categories. But this, gra- this grace that appeared, look at it, verse 12, look what it does. It trains us. It's a, it's a trainer, like an athletic trainer that's there coaching and telling you what to do and helping you to push to see how you need to live. Training us, it says, first of all, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God comes into our lives and it trains us to let go, to renounce, to deny and push away those things that are wrong, the sin that is found in this world and in our flesh. The worldly passions, the worldly lusts, those desires that rise up within us for things that are wrong and things that are evil that come from our old nature in us. Because, see, when we, the grace of God has transformed us and salvation has come, we long to be different people. And the grace of God trains us to be those different kinds of people. But not only does it tell us to put off and renounce the sin and ungodliness, but it tells us how we are to live. Look how it trains us. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's the negative and the positive. There's the put off and there's the put on. We are to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Be those who reflect the character of Jesus in all of our decisions and in all of our choices. We're, being, we're new people who are being shaped by Christ. But But then look, verse 13, what is included in this put on? What is included in how a Christian is to live who's been radically transformed by the grace of God? Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A key part of living in this age, of us living Christian lives here in 2020, is that we are waiting. We are eagerly waiting for our blessed hope, not just a subcategory hope, not just a lesser hope, but the blessed hope, the greatest hope. We're waiting for this, and what is that hope? It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him to appear and for us to see his glory, for him to come back. Just a side note here, that this verse is a, an, uh, an argument for the deity of Jesus Christ because the, the words God and Savior, Jesus Christ, are, uh, are identified in the Greek with one uh, par- article, with the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's talking about one person. We wait for that God-man, Jesus Christ, to come and to appear and for his glory to be seen. This is the church's happy, blessed hope the hope that has strengthened and cheered the church in every age, and it must strengthen and cheer us in this age. One author of a prior generation put it this way. He said, this then is that blessed hope, the glorious coming of the Lord. It is the next great epic of the future. The New Testament saints look forward to the second coming of Christ. This is their north star. Again, the ages have been long and weary, but the end comes. The world may scoff, and the church may even let go of this holy faith, but at the appointed time, the church and the world will see the, see the Lord coming in power for righteous judgment. They will see the dead in Christ living and sitting with him on his throne, and then the millennial glory. The second coming of Christ 
as his author says, is the north star of the church. We keep our eye on it no matter what age that we're in. It directs us in the way we should go and it gives us hope that we know our place and we know the future. We know what's coming. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to show how our hope as Christians is found in the promise that Christ the King will return to this earth. That this is what gives us hope as we sit around our Christmas table, as we celebrate this holiday. Our hope is that Jesus is coming back. And so we're first going to look at the reasons that we can have this hope, and secondly, the expressions of our, if, of our hope. If we truly have this hope, what, how should it be expressed? How should it look in our lives? So first, let's look at the reasons for our hope. The reasons for our hope, and there's four of them. The first reason is, in one sense, a dub principle, but it must be stated, and that is Jesus will come back. Why can we have hope? Because there is a certain fact that Jesus will return. He will come back. This is not hypothetical. This is a, a fact that we can bank upon. Now, I have many verses for us to look up this morning, and, and I invite you to, to turn with me if you're able to. Uh, if not, you can simply listen as we turn there and read them. But let's for, turn first to Acts chapter 1. I want to establish this fact that indeed Jesus is coming back. It's, been, it's stated all over the Bible. Acts chapter 1. This is the final moments that Jesus have, has with his disciples. And he's been teaching them, talking with them. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, being Jesus, was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is an emphatic statement that just as Jesus went up physically into heaven in the clouds, so he will return again physically in the clouds and come back upon this soil of this earth. It's a declarative promise that just as he went up, he will come back. Look also to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this, this one isn't uh, on the slide, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. This talking about Jesus coming back for his church, for, his, for the believers. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord himself will descend, it says. He's coming back from heaven. Turn to the minor prophets, to Zechariah 14. Zechariah verse, uh, chapter 14 Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Those uh, memorizing the books of the Bible from Awana have stayed with me till today. Um, Zechariah chapter 14. 
Look in verse 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. This is a day that, an event that has not yet taken place, but it says when Jesus Christ comes back, he's gonna, he's gonna stand, his feet, it says, shall stand on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is gonna split. A remarkable geographic feature that will happen on the day that he's, he returns. John, chapter 14. Book of, Gospel of John, chapter 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room, and he says, oh, we can start in verse 1. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to, to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Jesus promises to his disciples, I will come again that you may be where I'm at. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. In the midst of this great argumentation and logic on the sacrifice of Jesus, the atonement of Christ, and how his atonement, his sacrifice was greater than the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, his sacrifice was once and for all never to be repeated. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, get this, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And finally, let's look in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the book of New Testament prophecy, and we see that this return of Christ is specified throughout the book from the first chapter to the last. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds. Right? Hint back to Acts chapter 1. He went in the clouds. It says he will return exactly the same way. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Behold, he is coming, he says. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus says this, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And now flip to the very end of the book and we'll see this repeated. Chapter 22. Revelation 22. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then look down in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And John then says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. Folks, this is an established fact that Jesus Christ will return to this planet. 
We wait for his return, but not in vain. It's not wishful thinking. We're not crossing our fingers hoping that he comes back. We know confidently and we can expect with absolute assurance that Jesus Christ is coming back. That is what our hope is placed in. And this hope was expressed by the early Christians. We've been seeing that even in these these verses so far. But the early church firmly expected that Jesus would come back. They looked longingly to that return of Christ. It wasn't in doubt. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, talking about the Thessalonian church and their conversion to Jesus. What characterized their conversion? What, did they, what, what characterized how they lived their, their baby Christian lives? Well, 1 Thessalonians verses 9 and 10. For they themselves... These are, these are believers in other areas, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, the Thessalonians, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Part of the baby faith of these Thessalonians was that we've turned from idols to turn to the living and true God. There's only one God and we will serve him alone. And we wait for his son who's coming back. And he's going to save us from the wrath to come. As part of their baby faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We see this Paul expressing this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 7. Paul says, that this church has been gifted in many ways so that, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that what characterizes the Corinthian church is that they're waiting, they're eagerly waiting for the return of Jesus. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, also speaking of this very reality. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There is power in the Lord's return that will transform us, and so we await him to come back. Now, these believers also saw it as an imminent return. This return was not sometime far off in the future, but it could be any day. Now, believers have been waiting for thousands of years, yes, but they've always believed that the return of the Lord was at hand, that it could be any day. Here here in Philippians, look at Philippians 4, verse 5. It says, let your reasonableness or gentleness, as some translations have it, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. This idea of closeness that he could be here any day, any time. Flip to James, the book of James chapter 5. I told you we're jumping around, so either sit and listen or, or, or hang on and James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's at hand. It's near. 
He goes on, he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Get this, end of verse 9, behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge representing the Lord, he's there, he's about to walk through the door, he's about to come again. The nearness is there. So the early church firmly believed and was eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back, and they believed that it could happen any moment. And these people were known as those who eagerly waited for Jesus. They didn't just believe in some doctrine known as the second coming, but they deep down in their hearts, they firmly believed and were eagerly waiting each day for Christ to come back. He was not there. Just a few weeks ago, we, we looked at the words of Jesus where he says that right now the bridegroom is in their midst and so his disciples don't fast, but he says one day the bridegroom will go away and then his disciples will fast. We are in that time when the bridegroom has left. And so there's a, a, a certain sadness in the fact that we are separated from our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't see him and we long to be with him. And so we, we, we eagerly wait for that. But we can wait for the return of Christ because it's certain. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we do know that Christ will return one day. And nothing can shake us from this belief. But the second reason we can have hope in the return of Christ is number two, this world will be transformed. We have hope in the return of Jesus because when he comes back, this world will be utterly transformed. When the king returns, he will then establish his kingdom. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. When will he sit on his glorious throne? When he comes in glory, which is still a future day. And it's when he sits there and he sits on his throne, this world will be utterly transformed. His kingdom will be characterized by everything we long for this world to be like. Every aspect of life on this planet will be improved because the curse will be lifted. And we get this, this portrait of what this kingdom will be like, the indelic uh, idea of what, Christ, what this earth will be like from the, primarily from the prophets, from the Old Testament. Let's first look in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. And here we see that there will be spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation. Isaiah Chapter 61, verse 11. It says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. It's going to be a greenhouse for spiritual growth and for righteousness. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. Zechariah, the, the book we were, uh, were in previously, chapter 14, verse 16, says, Then everyone who survives all the, of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. There's going to be this mass worshiping of Jesus where people are going to be flocking to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts. We don't see that today. We don't see all of the nations, righteousness and praise sprouting up among the nations. We don't see people flocking to worship Jesus. But that will happen when he comes back. But not only will we see spiritual transformation, we're going to see political transformation. Stay here in Zechariah in chapter 9. 
verses 9 and 10. Now, these verses are going to sound familiar because they're quoted in all, in all the Gospels. At least part of them are. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You'll remember those verses from when Jesus entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. But look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The rule of Jesus Christ will be over all the earth and he will speak peace. He will be the only one that will bring ultimate lasting peace to this earth. The book of Micah, chapter four. Back to the left, just a couple books. Micah chapter 4, speaking, uh, verse 1 says it will come to pass in the latter days. Uh, speaking of this end time prophecy, but look at verse 3 and 4. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no man shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. They, there will be no more war. All the weapons used for war, the swords uh, and the spears will be beat into agricultural tools because now they need it to foster the growth of the earth. They don't need them to fight against one another. This will be utter political transformation of this earth. There will also be agricultural transformation. And we're not gonna turn there, but Amos chapter nine talks about how there's just so much growing in this millennial kingdom that Christ has set up that they can't harvest it fast enough. Educationally, there will be transformation. And I'll just point you here in Micah chapter four, verse one and two. We had read three and four, but look at one and two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples, that is nations, shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that get this, he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The nations want to know the law of God. They want to know the Lord. And so they're flocking to Jerusalem to learn about who this God is. Again, we don't see that today, but we're gonna see that when the Lord returns. And lastly, we see that physically, mankind, the physical nature of man is going to be radically different. Let's look in Isaiah 29, verse 18 says this, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Verse, or chapter 35, verse five and six says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. There will be healing of all infirmities, healing of all diseases. And so what do we see in this? What do we see in this? And how does this help our hope? 
What we see from these passages, and we could multiply these uh, many more, is this. That the second coming of Christ fulfills our deepest longings. We desire world peace, as we talked about at the beginning. But that world peace will not come by any merely human ruler. It will come through the God-man, Jesus Christ, when he comes to set up his kingdom. We long for righteous judgment, for leaders who know the Lord and look to walk in his ways and speak truthfully and live truthfully and, and, and live honestly and righteously and want above all to honor Christ in how they lead. That's not going to happen on this earth until Jesus comes back. And then we will have righteous government fully and truly. We long for that which is painted on every vacation brochure, this idea of peace, tranquility, sitting quietly and enjoying peace and rest. The prophets tell us that everyone will sit under their fig tree and under their vine. There'll be this, this idyllic time of, of sitting peacefully and, and owning our own property and being able to enjoy that. We long for holiness in our lives and holiness in others. We long for the knowledge of God to be spread to all of our neighbors and all the nations. And that will come when Christ comes back. And friends, we long for health. This has been the preoccupation of our nation and this world this, in 2020 is health and avoiding death. And while we can and we should work for good health in this age, we have many advances in medicine and medical technology, praise God, but something ultimately will kill us. Something will ultimately end our lives and we can't do anything to stop that. Because you see, perfect health and absence of risk will not come until Christ comes back. It's not until that day when we're in his kingdom and everything is made right that we can live at rest. And so the church has hope. We have hope even in the midst of dismal days because we know the king will come back and set up his kingdom and this world will be made right one day. Evil will be done away with and everything that strikes fear in our hearts, everything that gives us sleepless nights will be done away with. And so we long for that day for Christ to come back, that he would set everything right. We groan, we ache. We know that there will not be a utopia in this world apart from him. And so we hope that the one-born king will return to set up his kingdom. But when he comes back, he's got to deal with all of us. He's got to deal with humanity. And that leads us to our third reason why the return of Christ gives us hope. The third reason is that unbelievers will be judged. Unbelievers will be judged. What do I mean by this? Well, the Bible recognizes that one of the hardest aspects of living life in this fallen world is watching evil people prosper. The Psalms wrestle with this, as Asaph does in Psalm 73, says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And don't we all struggle with that? To see those who are so wicked, and yet they seem to be living life high in the town, and there is no trouble coming to them. But the ultimate reason that we can have hope in an evil generation is that Christ will have the final say. Evil will not go on forever. Jesus will return and bring the wrath of God upon them, giving them the judgment that they deserve. I want you to see this just from one passage in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
the Thessalonians have been experiencing hardship and affliction and persecution. And he says, uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 5, this is, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, get this, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, these are hard words. These are hard words to see that Jesus Christ indeed will come back and bring judgment and wrath with him to all those who disobey the Lord. But it's a fact of truth of Scripture. Now, does this mean we hate our enemies? Does this mean we speak evil to those who do us harm? Absolutely not. Jesus told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We are to be gracious towards those who do, who afflict us. And we are called to share the gospel with them. That maybe, perchance, they might be saved and not reap this fate. We want them to not have to experience the wrath of the King Jesus when he comes back. And so we, we plead with them and we share with them and we compel them, please come to Christ because we don't want them to experience this. But at the end of the day, we can have hope to know that evil will not have the final say. We know that Jesus, the mighty King, will. But the other side of the coin is that if he's judging unbelievers, fourthly, he saves believers. Christians will be saved, and this is why we have hope. As we read in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am coming to you again. He's coming back to save us. Or as the Thessalonians said in 1 Thessalonians 1, right, that they await from God's Son from heaven who will deliver us from the wrath to come. There is salvation that is still coming. Yes, we are saved, and that is guaranteed for us today, but we know ultimate redemption, ultimate salvation is still awaiting us. And so when Jesus comes back is when we receive that full redemption, that full salvation. We'll be sanctified completely. We'll be delivered from suffering, delivered from wrath. We'll be given righteousness. We'll be made blameless and guiltless. Friends, all of this aching and longing that we're not fully uh, like we should, that we're not, we don't fully express the character of Christ, all of that will come to fruition when Jesus comes back. And so we hope and we long for that day. So these are reasons, four reasons why we can have hope in Christ's return. With our time remaining, let's then look at how, if we truly have this hope, if we truly are longing and eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back, how should that express itself in our lives? What does it look like to be believers who are eagerly waiting for the Son of God to return? If we have this hope, we should, number one, rest in our salvation. Rest in our salvation. As we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus Christ came, took on human flesh. He then lived a perfect life and was crucified and paid for our sins upon the cross. That is where our salvation was accomplished. 
But Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 5 that we have a salvation waiting to be revealed to us in the last time. There's still a salvation that's waiting to come. And so we rest in all that Christ has accomplished, knowing that it is certain. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a guarantee. His stamp is upon us that we will receive the inheritance, which is all that we've talked about coming in the millennial kingdom when Christ comes back. The full assurance of salvation. Ephesians 1 verse 13, he says, In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, get this, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. There's an inheritance we'll receive that we have not received yet, but that we have been given the Holy Spirit, we've been sealed with him, so that we know that one day we will receive that full inheritance of all that God has promised us. So if we have hope in the coming of Christ, we can rest in our salvation. Secondly, we're gonna eagerly long for the return of Christ, right? I mean, this is what we've been saying all morning. If we know Jesus is coming back, then we're gonna eagerly long and ache for him. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 says, though you do not see him, you love him. And if we love Christ, then we should, we should, we should grieve his absence. If we love Christ, we should long to see him again. We should await our Savior from heaven. We should be eagerly, eagerly waiting for him. We should not say, oh Lord, we want you to come back at a future time, not yet, please. No, we should say every day, today, Lord. Is it today? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We should be loving his appearing, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, looking for it every day. We want to see him. Each day we wake up and we know this world is not right. <laughs> we know our bodies aren't right. We've got aches and pains. We've got sorrows upon our hearts. We turn on the news, we see the problems in the world. This world isn't right. We long for it to be right. But most of all, we want Christ glorified. If we love Jesus, we want to see him lifted up. We want to see him glorified. We want to see no one else receive the praise and adulation like Jesus. And so we want him to come back that he could receive the nations, that he could receive all the praise and all the worship that he deserves. Right now, he's not receiving the glory that he is owed, but one day he will. And so we're waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, 2 Peter 3.12. We're eagerly waiting for him. Thirdly, what does this hope look like in our lives? It means that we should be people of holiness and godliness. And for this, I want you to turn to, to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is a, a crucial linkage in the argumentation of Peter here it's important for us to see. 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord, that is this final day when he comes back, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Look at this, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? 
But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, you see this linkage? The day of God, the coming of Christ is coming in which there's gonna be judgment and radical transformation of the world. So therefore, what kind of lives should we live of godliness and holiness, he says. That means that we need to live for eternity. This is not our home, that we're simply pilgrims, we're exiles, we're passing through. This is not our ultimate home. It means that we need to be killing sin in our life. That we, to have holiness in our lives, we need to be, be what um, a few verses later, Peter says, since you're waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We want to see sin eradicated from our lives. When Jesus comes back, we don't want to be, be living in vile sin and disobedience. We want to see as much of that sin and ugliness removed out of our lives because we want to be pure when he comes back. Now, we fight that every day of our lives. We will not see ultimate purity and ultimate holiness here, but we fight for it every day. We need to live to please the Lord so that we long to see him that we don't, first, first John chapter two, verse 28 says that, that we don't want to shrink back from him when he arrives. We want to go towards him and embrace. There should be a warmness and a friendliness with Christ. We need to stay awake. We need to be sober-minded. There's so many passages in the New Testament about staying awake, that we're children of the day and that the world is, is drunk that they're in the darkness, that they don't know that the Lord could come like a thief in the night any day. And so they just carry on with life and are happy to fulfill their own desires and they have no idea that the judge of all the earth is at the door and could be coming back any day. But we are people of the light. We know that that could be there and so we live lives of holiness, circumspect, looking at how we make choices, how we live our lives, how we spend our money, how we spend our time because we know the king is coming. And so we must be sober-minded in these days. And that means that we also endure suffering. We endure suffering. We'd be patient because we know the judge will come back. We know he will ultimately judge evil. The fourth thing that this hope should express in our lives is that we should preach the gospel to the lost. And I already mentioned this, but if we know that Jesus could come back any day, then we've got a message to share, do we not? We've got people who, again, as, as, as Paul says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, that the world is, is drunk and, and, and living in darkness. And they have no idea that Christ will come like a thief in the night. And so we need to be open and declaring and shouting this message. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born, that there's hope in Jesus. We've got to declare this message. We've got to, to let lost people know that time is short. There's urgency with this good news. It must be shared far and wide. Finally, what does this hope look like in our lives? It means that we work for good and we feast with joy. And this might be kind of a funny uh, con conclusion in terms of the last expression of hope, but I want to emphasize this, that you've heard the phrase, oh, he's, of, uh, uh, he's so heavenly minded that he's of no earthly good, right? He's so set on something else that he's, He's useless here. And even though this world is not our home, we're not to be checked out. We can't just be this huddled group of believers that don't do anything else. We just sit there and wait and wait and wait and we just kind of all suck our thumbs in the corner waiting for Jesus to come back and we're not gonna live our lives. No, there's things for us to be about. 
We're to be busy for the gospel's sake, as we even mentioned about preaching the gospel. But I just remind you of the passage we started with, Titus chapter 2. It says that we are eagerly waiting for our blessed hope, but it says for the appearing of Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we're waiting for the blessed hope to come, but we're zealous for good works, which means we're doing things. We're active for Christ's sake in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces. We are looking to bring about good in people's lives. Friends, may we not be asleep on the job. May we not allow the second coming of Christ to be for us to sit back and to do nothing. May we be active in what Christ has called us to do. At the same time, we recognize that there are things in this world for us to enjoy. First Timothy chapter 4 says that some would say to abstain from foods and abstain from this, but Paul says all these things can be, can be enjoyed with thanksgiving. All the food and all the things that God has given us, we're, we're going to enjoy some of that through this Christmas holiday. And we can enjoy that. We just recognize it's not ultimate. We recognize that the greatest feast will come at the marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ comes back. We look forward to that great and final day. Well, this morning we've looked at a lot of scriptures, seeing the fact that Jesus, indeed, the king of this earth, will return to capture this earth which is rightfully his. He will vanquish his enemies. And for those who have believed in his name, that will be a wonderful reunion. It will be the happiest of all days. But for those who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation, it will be a dark day. It will be a day that each unbeliever has deserved for the judge of all the earth judges fairly. And so my question to each one of you here and all of you listening is, are you ready for Jesus to come back? Are you ready for him to appear at any moment? Are you ready to embrace him and have that joyful reunion? Or are you fearful of his return, shrinking back away from the judge. The Bible's clear that salvation is found only in Jesus. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved but through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who was crucified, buried, and rose again and now sits, has ascended to heaven and sits at the Father's right hand and the one who will one day come back. Some of you who are listening to me God is being patient with you. You are refusing his gospel. You're refusing the good news. You're refusing his offer of salvation. And sure, God has not judged you yet. It's because he's displaying his perfect patience to you. But you must, you must realize that every breath that you have is a gift from him. Everything is, has come from his kindness. And God wants you to turn to him in repentance. That's why he's being kind and patient to you. And so you must turn from your, your selfishness and your wicked ways and live by turning to him before it's too late. You've been presuming upon God's patience too long. You're procrastinating. You think that you'll have time in the future to change your ways, but you don't know that. You don't know if you will die tonight. You don't know if Christ will come back tomorrow. And then it will be too late. But Jesus said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew chapter 11. And he also said this in John chapter 6. 
Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to Jesus and find rest for your souls that you might embrace the king when he comes back one day. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we do wait with longing hearts for the return of the king. And we know that even as we celebrate Christmas this year, there's many things that are disappointing about it. Many aches and pains, many things that weigh us down, make us weary, make us sad. But we thank you for the hope of the scriptures that point us to not look for our ultimate joy in this life, but to know that our blessed hope is the fact that our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is returning. May you bolster our hope, bolster our faith to trust in that even when there is trouble all around us. And Father, I pray for those who have not trusted in Christ, who will experience Jesus as judge when he returns, that they would turn from their rebellion today and find life everlasting. We pray this in Christ's mighty name, amen. All right, church, you are dismissed, and hopefully we'll see many of you on Thursday at our Christmas Eve service. You're dismissed.